Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for part two in a two-part series titled What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? with Kaylina Bray, Nicola Wagenberg, and host Melissa K. Nelson. Welcome, everyone. I am Kira Epstein. I'm the program coordinator at the New School at Commonweal, and I am here today with Brooke Hecht and Catherine Cummings from the Center for Humans and Nature to welcome our host, Melissa K. Nelson, and our guests, Kaylina Bray and Nicola Wagenberg. This is the second conversation in our series about the seventh fire. And once again, we're delighted to co-present uh, the event with the Center for Humans and Nature and to help them celebrate the publication of their book, What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? We are honored that all of you are here with us to listen to the conversation, uh, joining us from all over the world. So thank you for being with us at the New School at Commonweal today. I'll turn this over to Brooke and Catherine in just a minute to welcome you further and to introduce our host and guests. You can find all of our recordings on SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks to Ken Adams, who makes all of this run from behind the scenes. I will turn it over to Brooke Hecht, the Executive Director of the Center for Humans and Nature. Over to you, Brooke. Thank you. And uh, it's so nice to see in the chat some uh, some of the same voices from last week and to have you back here with us again. Um, I just want to say that we at the Center for Humans and Nature are so honored to uh, be partnering on this event with the new school at Commonweal. And we're also just thrilled that we were a partner in publishing this book. I'm also so grateful um, to have had a chance to work on this project with my colleague, uh, my dear colleague at the Center for Humans and Nature, Catherine Kasuf Cummings. Um, Catherine is going to share with you a bit of the background on this project as she leads our Questions for Resilient Future program at the Center. Thanks, Brooke. And I just want to say that it's a gift to work on this question of what kind of ancestor do you want to be? and also in service of the center's mission with you. Um, I'd also like to extend thanks to Kira and Commonweal for being generous, wonderful partners, um, making space for the conversation we'll be engaging in today, which is the sequel to our gathering uh, last week that our co-editor Melissa led um, with Rowan White and Rachel Wolfgram. I'm joining you all today from the traditional homelands of the people of the Council of Three Fires, the Ojibwe, Potawatomi, and Odawa, as well as the Menominee, Miami, and Ho-Chunk nations who knew this land as a place of exchange, gathering, and healing. And I'm honored to be with you today as this is the 10-year anniversary of the Center for Humans and Nature's publication, Questions for Resilient Future, from which the Ancestor book emerged. For 10 years now, Questions for Resilient Future has nurtured a public practice of questions, engaging with the world and refining our responses to the challenges of our time with humility, curiosity, and through expanding community. If you visit humansinnature.org, you can explore our questions, including the current question, what stories does the land hold, which is led by our editorial fellow, Christine Lukasavich. You can also read others' responses, and you can share your own response to any of the questions in our series. 
Additionally, later this month, our journal, Minding Nature, will feature a special section on this publication, and that will include an essay by Christy Belcourt, who is the artist whose work is on the cover of the Ancestor book, which I'll hold up here. You'll see it a few more times today. Um, and I'm really delighted to be able to celebrate this 10-year anniversary with all of you with the question that gives us root today, the question, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? I hope this conversation will inspire you, if you haven't yet, to check out the book, um, which was released earlier this year in partnership, as uh, Brooke mentioned, with University of Chicago Press and is co-edited by John Hausdorfer, um, Brooke Hecht, and Melissa Nelson and myself. Um, and so this gathering comes from the book, but extends specifically from the section focusing on the seventh fire. And this is a section that Melissa K. Nelson crafted um, with her colleagues, two of whom are here to share with us today. In addition to being a co-editor of the book, What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? Melissa K. Nelson is an ecologist and indigenous scholar activist. She is Anishinaabe, Métis, Norwegian, and is a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians. Melissa teaches at Arizona State University, and she is president of the Cultural Conservancy. And in addition to the book, What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? Melissa has contributed to and edited the book, Traditional Ecological Knowledge, Learning from Indigenous Practices for Environmental Sustainability, and the book, Original Instructions, Indigenous Teachings for a Sustainable Future, both really beautiful, important books for this time. I hope you check all of them out. Um, she's also the creator and host of the Native Seed Pod podcast. So Melissa, I'm gonna hand it over to you. Thank you for everything you contribute to the ancestor question, including how you live it each day. Mm, thank you so much, Catherine and Brooke, um, everyone for coming and being a part of this event today. It's auspicious new moon in the heart of autumn season and fall time. And I'm just very honored to um, be with you and spend a little time exploring this profound question of what kind of ancestor do you want to be? Uh, again, Bujun and Dinwe Baganatug, I greet you all as relatives in my Ojibwe language. Tanshikia, uh, I greet you in my Cree language. And I'm really happy that we're going to um, dive a little deeper um, with Kaylina Bray and Nicola Wagenberg and really focusing on some of the work we've done uh, with seeds and with the youth. I am calling in, zooming in today from Coast Miwok Territory on the ancestral lands of the Sovereign Nation of the Feder Federated Indians of Great and Rancheria and many other Coast Miwok communities to the south of me, the Ohlone peoples of the San Francisco Bay Area. And so I honor their ancestors who took care of this land for, uh, for millennia um, before I moved here and was born here. And I honor their uh, contemporary citizens and their future generations. So it was so wonderful to be invited by Catherine and John and Brooke to co-edit this collection and to really focus on um, this question for Indigenous communities. And really, it's kind of full circle. The, the book kind of started by a conversation John was having with uh, Winona LaDuke, the wonderful Anishinaabe leader. And it's such a central question to um, Native people about honoring our ancestors and also looking to the future generations. 
And so this concept of seven is very important to the Anishinaabe people and to many folks um, around the world. It represents the four directions of, you know, the cardinal directions or north, south, east, west. For us, it's our stars in the different regions. Um, it's above um, in the, the sky world and below in the earth world. And then that seventh direction of within the great mystery um, that is often unseen or universal. And um, the seventh fire prophecy, though, is a very deep and um, sacred tradition of the Anishinaabe Confederacy uh, that Catherine mentioned earlier that really consists of our Ojibwe people, the Potawatomi people, and the Odawa or Ottawa people, uh, who are often called the Three Fires Confederacy. Uh, and we're keepers and holders of the seventh fire uh, prophecy. Uh, but it's also shared with many other communities of the Northeast in Turtle Island, what we call North America. And so this, um, the fires refer to uh, generations. They refer to literal fires that happen on the land. And they refer to kind of eras. And also there's a spiritual fire with a message that was given to us by seven prophets, actually eight prophets, when our people uh, historically lived on the great salty waters of the East Coast, um, what's Nova Scotia and Maine, um, where the St. Lawrence Seaway um, spills out into that mighty ocean. And a prophet came to us and told us that it was important for our people to begin a westward migration um, up the river to where the sweet waters are and where we would find the food that grows upon the water, our manomen, our good grain, the wild rice um, that has sustained our people for millennia. And so the fires represent this historical migration um, across the land and various communities would stop and really like a place and say, hey, we're going to stay here. And um, we'd say, wonderful. And some relatives would move on. And so those are the three fires, the major fires. There were other subgroups as well. But even more significantly and spiritually that these prophets gave us a message about kind of the the tenor or the the tone of each generation. Um, the first two fires were very traditional migrations and living quite traditionally and well. And the third fire um, as well, um, moving up the land and living a traditional way. But by the time the fourth fire came, a prophet mentioned, and actually two prophets came saying that um, a light-skinned people were coming, um, and it's been interpreted different ways, but um, that there was kind of an evil wind coming from the east. And one prophet said that if these people come um, with their hands open and with good hearts in the face of brotherhood and sisterhood, we could create a mighty nation of multiple nations and create great unity. Um, and the other prophet said, yes, but be careful because this face of friendship um, looks very similar to the face of death and that um, you have to be very careful to um, discern the intentions of these people. They may come with an open hand on one side, but they may come with a weapon on the other side. And so be wary of these people coming into our land. And so the fourth fire was a time of great 
tumult and collision, cultural collision with the colonizers. And by the time of the fifth and the sixth fire, it was quite clear that um, the second prophet was correct um, because we were met with uh, disease and devastation and uh, warfare and massacres and relocations and um, then eventually reservations, um, uh, assimilation. And so the the fifth and sixth fires were sadly a time of great loss and, and tragedy for our people. And by the time of the seventh fire, however, and I think this coincides historically, some would say the 20th century or even more specifically the 1960s, when the civil rights movement was very um, was on fire and active, and the uh, American Indian movement was formed, and the Red Power movement, and it was a time of descendants of the first people looking back and saying, "Wait a minute, we have we cannot lose our culture. We need to maintain those little embers that are still burning of our language and our stories and our songs and our weaving traditions and our birch bark scrolls and." our food traditions and our traditional seeds. And so the seventh fire has been a time of cultural recovery and cultural healing um, for Native Americans and our Anishinaabe people with our different societies and the great Anishinaabe Confederacy. And so the seventh fire is a wonderful time of renewal and restoration um, that I think I have been a part of and I think uh, many of us have been a part of. Uh, And then what's very exciting is through this recovery, um, there is the possibility, the prophet said, now there's a possibility of lighting the eighth fire. And the eighth fire will be a very unique and different era. And we're kind of at a crossroads. There will be a crossroads that we need to take, not just indigenous peoples, but the the light-skinned relative. And this crossroads is between a good green path um, of health and wellness and unity and um, really honoring our sacred circle of life. And the other crossroads is um, a scorched earth of of broken glass and metal and um, really death and despair. And so we cannot take the green path without unity between um, the indigenous peoples and the light-skinned race. And this is the time that we're in right now. And we hope that we can light this eighth fire. And the eighth fire will look like young people. It's going to be um, very diverse and very different um, than what um, we're used to. So I'm going to read just a short paragraph from my chapter chapter regenerative that talks about these folks. All right. Uh, I talked about um, to be an ancestor that is both a a hospice worker and a midwife. Um, So to balance the hospice work, I want to be an ancestor who served as a midwife and a witness to the new old consciousness of the eighth fire. This is the new generation of young people who are strong, beautiful, and united, despite pressures to stay isolated and divided. 
This is the generation of proud, Métis, Mestizo, Hapa, Creole, queer, fluid, passionate young people who are healing the relationship between the indigenous and the settler, the colonizer and the colonized, the feminine and the masculine, and are consciously choosing to walk the green path, the pollen path, the red road, and the beauty way to a peaceful coexistence on this precious earth. This generation is rejecting colonial divisions and is rising up and out of the drowning anguish of our times with hip hop music, round dance, earth poetry, and new collective structures from permaculture co-ops to urban farms dedicated to harmony and to justice. So this is where we're at, and um, I am just so honored to be here with Kaylina Bray and Nicola Wagenberg. And Kaylina, I think, is part of the Eighth Fire, and we can see what she thinks of that. And Nicola, as my sister and comadre, is, is part of the midwifing um, and witness um, that has been helping to um, support uh, the Eighth Fire through her work as a psychologist and um, co-leader of the Guardians of the Waters Youth Project, which she'll be sharing about very shortly. Um, and with that little background, I would now like to um, show a short clip that we showed last week. So for some of you, you've already seen it, but it really links together the theme of the Ancestry book and our particular session here, talking about seeds and sacred stories and the seventh fire and really our obligations to future generations Up and down worlds collide Over and over comes this sacred birth The blood earth sacrifice Spinning orbit has gotten yay Magneta's fear dancing in flight Expands to highland pangea Stands scout woman tree of Wow. <laughs> wow. I never tire of that extraordinary film. And I would now like to introduce Kaylina Bray from the Seneca Nation, uh, who is an educator and an activist, uh, an ambassador for the corn peoples and the corn nation. She holds degrees from Brown University and Oxford University and is currently working on a doctorate at Johns Hopkins University. And Kaylina is, uh, has been a wonderful contributor to the Cultural Conservancy and um, has founded another 
networks and other funds. And so, Kaylina, I would like to invite you to um, introduce yourself traditionally, if you'd like, and also reflect on that beautiful introduction because you are related to Sky Woman falling to the earth that is depicted in that beautiful short animated video. Um, so please, Kaylina, um, share with us. Thank you so much, Melissa. Wow, what what a video and what an introduction. Um, I just said uh, greetings. I'm so glad that you're all well in the Seneca language. Um, and my name, while it's Kaylina in English, um, is Wasentat. Uh, that was given to me uh, at a very young age in the longhouse. And that translates kind of to that rhythm, the beat that you have when you're beating the drum. We have this beautiful water drum that has this, just this ping. It's such a beautiful sound. Um, and I come from the, the Cataractes territory. I'm, I'm from the turtle clan. So we're matrilineal, my, my mother, my grandmother, um, and so on, are all turtle. Uh, and I feel very much connected to the turtle and that I, I move a bit slow and I, I feel very deliberate, but I, I think that I'm learning that, you know, maybe that's not a bad thing. <laughs> um, so, and, and the Cataragas territory, it's, it's all the way in the Western part of New York and our, I'm part of the, the Seneca, which are part of the a Confederacy called the Haudenosaunee. And we span traditionally throughout new, current day New York state into Canada um, and we're the keeper of the Western door. So there are six other nations that are part of this Confederacy that was formed um, a very long time ago um, for us to, at a time of war to come together because we recognize that it was much stronger to have, you know, what was considered to be um, a bundle of arrows that was harder to break than just one single arrow. So we are that confederacy um, and I'm, I'm so honored to be here and just thank you. Thank you all for being here. Thank you to Melissa, Brooke, Kira, everyone who's, who's made this possible. Um, I really identify and I think one big part aside from um, going the educational route and having that pathway is that I really relate strongly to the foods where I come from and that was um, a big part of what I wrote about um, coming from the, the people of corn, of white corn specifically called Oneogan uh, in the Seneca language. So uh, Oneo means corn and then Oneogan with the Gan is, is the white corn. Uh, and I'm still learning the language. That's something that I think is, um, is such a, an important part of, of how um, you know, we relate to the world, how we understand. And that's something that is a, is a lifelong continual journey. Um, but I wanted to, to reflect on what you were saying, Melissa, about that, the introduction, that beautiful video, um, the, the film, it, it is such, such a beautiful representation because not only does it capture some of these old teachings that we have around Sky Woman, but it really brings in that eighth, that eighth fire, that the generation and, and the perspective that goes into that, how people are understanding and absorbing and 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 you know transmitting some of this knowledge. And Sky Woman for us, so Sky Woman falling is part of a larger creation story, our creation story that we have. And as she's falling to the earth, 
she grabs onto these seeds as she's crawling through this kind of this tunnel earth. And then she's caught on the, the backs of the wings of these birds that have come together. They saw her falling and they said, we have to come together and help her. And she lands on the, the wings and they guide her onto the turtle's back and they, they place her there. And the animals are like, well, what are we going to do now? She needs to, we need to build some sort of, you know, kind of some land for her. And so they each go eat the, 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 the water animals. They dive into the water and they try to grab. They, they're like, we know there's something at the bottom of this earth. And so they each come up and they, they, they aren't able to grab this. And then finally the muskrat grabs it, comes up and then gives it to her and he's almost on his last breath and he's just like here and he opens his palm and there's just a little bit of dirt and so she puts it on turtle's back and begins walking in the counterclockwise direction and so we we see that in our dances the longhouse there's a woman shuffle dance that we do that that kind of honors what she did in order to build this kind of it grew and grew as she's shuffling and going the counterclockwise direction. And I think to that longhouse, um, the longhouse that I grew up um, going to with, with my family, my relatives, and it's it's a place that holds such a visceral memory. And it's something that I write about, um, I wrote about in, in the essay. And I wanted to just take a moment to to both reflect on that and read a a, a paragraph that really kind of captures how that memory holds so close to the way that I think about corn in particular. Um, and I talk about that memory in the sense that in our longhouse, we corn is such a big part of our ceremony. So after it every ceremony, there's a big pot of corn that's boiling in the background. And so there's these smells and the sound of it and the fire. And it's just, you know, and then speaking in Seneca and the, the drums, and it's just these moments and these memories are build that sort of connection and relationship to corn. These memories punctuate my childhood. And to this day, each time I take a bite of corn soup, these stories are reawakened visually and subconsciously. They animate my understanding of corn, both as an ancestor and as an emblem of knowledge passed down by countless hands of farmers, seed savers, youth, and elders. In coming to understand the world of corn, I've seen how its spirit vibrates within the people it touches. And I recognize the spiritual element as a binding force that gives face to the legacy of movement, adaptation, and respect that corn has endured over its history as an ancestor. Corn spans a longitude and latitude of movement greater than any other domesticated food source. It is remarkable to think about the extent to which farmers and seeds have endured and adapted to the driest of desert landscapes in the Southwest and across Turtle Island to the thunderous and snowy regions of the Northeast. Beautiful, Kalina. Wow, that's gorgeous. Thank you. Mm. Mm. And I think if um, you wanted to show any video clips that would be available at some point to demonstrate some of this work that you've been writing about and sharing with us. Yes, I would. I would. Thank you. Yes. I mean, one big part of, of this journey around corn, and I think seeds connect so many, um, can bring you on, on many journeys and has 
has connected um, Melissa, Nicola, and myself in, in a journey around um, bringing this very special white corn to California, <laughs> to a place where it's not used to being. It's it's such a different climate and landscape. And I don't know if you both remember, but the first time we walked out onto the to the into the field in Nevada, which is extremely dry and it was hot. I remember Wendy Johnson, who is just this amazing master, beautiful gardener. And and just uh, anyway, (laughs) she just said that, I mean, just like, ah, the corn is not going to make it. Like it's, it's screaming for this moisture and it's not here. So, but along that journey, the corn is adapted, which it does. And it's such an emblem of people and how people can adapt and how it, you know, it grows alongside of us. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Kaylina Bray, Nicola Wagenberg, and host Melissa K. Nelson. So I wanted to show a quick clip around uh, one of the teachings that we did at the Indian Valley Organic Farm and Garden with the Cultural Conservancy. Oh my gosh, look at that answer. Yeah, I mean, look at how it is now. Eight generations later in California, it adapted very well with our love and care and the instructions of your your family that really helped us learn how to take care of it. So, wow. So much gratitude for that. Yeah, what a... I mean, and that's just, I mean, that's just one of the amazing things that to know that a seed has can travel and adapt. And it, it's just, a, I feel like they, you can learn so many lessons within that. So, and, and I, I mean, the, the chance to bring my parents out, which is um, what this video will, will show my, my, um, both my parents, we say Hotney and Noya. Um, Dave and Wendy, um, they did a teaching. I think they did a few over the course of the years, but they did one teaching right in the early stages to kind of just, you know, there's so much more what happens after you clear the land and you plant the seed. And then, you know, there's harvest and there's food. And how does that all play into building our, our native food ways and our food system? So I would love to show that, that video. Wonderful. Kimki Harasha, Atahum Kikatum, Chami Tonalach, Chami Kwavichulach, Ivitamet Pipu Yamangai. Joheko, our life sustainers, the food that we eat. So we're giving a thanks to Jaheko to provide what we do as that's part of the original instructions. Sharing the information on our foods it's to spark the interest so the younger generation will take on that. I think the connection is stronger when you do the planting. That seed is growing and you take care of it. Gosh, that was about, we're going on almost 10 years ago, Kayleen and Nicola, when we did that. That's incredible. 
but the corn has adapted well to Northern California coast Miwok land. Uh, can you believe it? <laughs> no, can you believe it? Can you believe it? But your parents knew. I don't think they would have entrusted the corn um, to us, the Cultural Conservancy, and through you, unless they knew that it was going to adapt well. And with the wonderful wisdom of Wendy Johnson and Peter Rudnick, the master farmers who guided us in that process. So it was really, really great. Well, thank you, Kalina, for that. Um, I think I will now move to Nicola and bring her voice into the circle. Uh, it is really my honor to introduce my dear sister, co-conspirer, colleague, um, Dr. Nicola Wagenberg, who is a cultural psychologist and educator and media maker and has worked uh, with the Cultural Conservancy for a gosh, couple decades now. And uh, she's in private practice in Berkeley, working on um, psychology and filmmaking and community education. And through her work with the Cultural Conservancy, she um, really led the youth initiative, our Guardians of the Waters Youth Program that we co-designed with some youth and others. And um, she just led this incredible process of, of healing and really nurturing the eighth fire. So, uh, dear Nicola, please um, welcome to, to the conversation and uh, let's hear more about your amazing work and reflections on the ancestor question. Thank you, Melissa. <laughs> um, Thank you everybody for being here with us. It's so special to be able to be part of this book, this anthology, this collection that brings together amazing writers, scholars, thinkers, artists, uh, indigenous activists. And today we're talking about the youth that are uh, very much part of, um, like you're saying, the eighth uh, fire the eighth generation that is so critical, important in these times. Um, so thank you, Kelina, so much for sharing. Uh, I love both of your chapters of, of your your essays in, in, on the in the book. Um, I was thinking, Kelina, the last sentence that you wrote in your essay, uh, if I may, just um, repeat it because it's just so critical. The 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 words that you say that are in the seed um, house in your community. Uh, they tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. Um, it's just, uh, I think it's, uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing the, the, the resilience, the struggle of your ancestors and how you persisted um, through, um, through a lot of struggle and through the seeds. And then having you and your parents share, share them with us and, and uh, with the Cultural Conservancy, it's just, um, just such an honor. Um, and um, yeah, so I wanted, I'm here to share more about the, the work that we've done with Melissa and with Kaylina. Uh, we've been mentioning this organization, the Cultural Conservancy, which is the native-led organization in the Bay Area and San Francisco in Ohlone territory. And like Melissa said, I've been um, working with the organization for uh, over a decade. And um, one of the uh, 
work that, uh, you know, a big part of the work that we do is intergenerational work. So we, uh, we work very much with the elders, the knowledge holders of the various different native communities, the local ones, uh, national, international, and uh, we bring together the, the knowledge holders and also the, the youth to be able to continue the, the fire, continue the circle, to continue the knowledge that needs to be shared between generations around uh, how to be, um, how to be with the land, how to survive, and how how to use uh, indigenous knowledge and practices as a way to reconnect and connect with what is really primal um, and necessary for for our survival, and uh, most importantly, really reconnect and connect with. Uh, with our relatives, the waters, the fire, the seeds, the stars, and understand that they are ancestors. And like one of the youth says in our book, in the essay that we wrote is, our seeds are our children and at the same time our ancestors. So time is, it's circular, right? Like the same water that our ancestors were uh, used to survive and fed them uh, are, is the same water as we have now. And uh, the question we have for our youth and that we help our youth who are very thirsty and hungry for this knowledge uh, because they're really ready to connect with their true essence and the true self and their purpose is um what are we going to do about the waters? Uh, how are we going to protect them? What does it mean to be guardians of the waters? So this is a big part of what this program that we, we're talking about that is that brings together Native youth and Indigenous youth from all uh, the Amer- from all over the Americas, the Pacific, um, and uh, uh, yeah, and, and globally. Um, is is part of the yeah it's part of the, the the practices that we that we hold and that we uh inquire into and that we experience uh with the youth through this program so i wanted so as part of it um uh, inspired by the question of of this book what kind of ancestor do you want to be we asked us that question to the youth um and uh, as part of the program, they uh, we use a lot of different native arts and different arts, drawing, uh, poetry, song, uh, to and we invited them to answer that question through you know creative expression. So I wanted to share uh, some of what of the responses that we have in the essay uh, that is in the book. Uh, so Melissa will if you don't mind showing the first uh, drawing uh, that one of our um, uh, our youth, Maya Harjo, did of corn. So Maya shares with us, corn is the ancestor whom I most want to learn from, whom I most want to be like. Each of her seeds holds the memories of every generation past, every planting ceremony, every mutation, every rainy season, every drought, every plant generation before her, every human relation who has nourished her. 
And all of these memories are the origin of her deep resilience. I am relearning my ceremonies, reconnecting to my communities, planting our seeds and fostering relationships that have not yet been lost. Because like corn, I want to be the type of ancestor who carries all of the other ancestors with me. So beautiful. So Maya is Chokta, Kwapa, Shawnee, Muskogee Cree, Seminole, and Delaware. And uh, we have the honor that um, as Maya came through the uh, Guardians of the Waters program a few years ago, then she's become one of the main indigenous young native, uh, young farmers at the Cultural Conservancy. Um, and she is, uh, she's been planting some of the corn that Melissa just showed. Those, those, that's the labor of, that's the fruit of her labor uh, with other farmers at, at TCC. So the next, image. Yeah, the, this next drawing uh, is by another young woman, uh, Jessica Garcia, who identifies as queer, mujer, indigenous to the lands of and waters of Michoacán, Mexico, raised in Southern California. So she writes, the question, I drew the moon, the mountains, cactus, little seedlings, the questions written around the border of the drawing read, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? What are you doing for the future seven generations? On the mountains, it reads, Mama Montaña, dame fortaleza, ancestros, sean mi guía. Mother Mountain, give me strength, ancestors be my guide. Not only do mountains symbolize wisdom and great strength, but my ancestors, the Purepecha peoples of Michoacán, settled in and around the mountains of Michoacán. Turning to the mountains for strength and guidance is like looking into the past and asking my ancestors for strength and guidance. Everything in my drawing has life. The nopales have the little espinas if you touch them, they'll poke you, yet they bear the delicious tuna that when thirsty will quench your thirst. Tonantzin ground me, Pachamama ground me. The little seedlings remind me that patience and trust in myself is essential to my growth, and thus to nurturing those generations that are, the come, are, are to come of me. This are different prayers that I send to my ancestors so that as an ancestor myself, I can embody and reciprocate those prayers onto my children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and those generations of children that I will one day meet when I am a mountain ancestor myself. For now, I must never forget that my ancestors are all around me as the elements on the earth that I sing to and listen and say prayers to. Beautiful, yeah. Gorgeous. And, yes. And then we have one last drawing that will show, um, this is by uh, an artist. Uh, she's an incredible, just, yeah, beautiful artist, Nance Pook, who's Mayan. And she says, we connect with our ancestors through nature, the land, cultivating it, 
I have not thought of them as much as I have through this program. Love the what kind of ancestor would you want to be questioned? I never saw myself as an ancestor passing through life. Thank you, Melissa. Those were so gorgeous to see on the big screen. Hope you all enjoyed them. And your um, your work guiding them, Nicola, in really exploring this question deeply was so inspiring to see. And I know they they got so much out of it. I mean, to be, you know, 18 years old and to imagine yourself as an ancestor, that was quite a process, right? Um, because you, your life is all ahead of you. And it's hard to think of already, you know, being looked at by the next generation. And yet they really dove into it really beautifully. And I know a concept, I can't even remember where it came from, maybe from the great Brock Dahlman, or as usual, the wordsmith or others, but this term plancestor, plants ancestor, became such a, a rallying cry for the, the youth guardians group. They so say a little bit more about that in that relationship with the plancestor. And I know that some of the youth wrote poems about that. Yes, yes. I have one actually uh, Antonio Roda. Uh, wrote a, a song around it and he kind of it, like we had not really talked much about it he kind of introduced the 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 concept to us through this song mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and really you know really connecting to his like native his he loves plants loves gardening so for him the the plants are his you know are his ancestors and he tends to them as a way for his children he has kids to um to be able to have um to have the the seeds and to have the food and to have the plants so he's already in that way was thinking of himself as an ancestor even though like you say it's like even for me it's like what what kind of ancestor do exactly. i want to be <laughs> but it's fun to think about that that's yeah, right it's a little uncomfortable but at the same time it's like you know like you and melissa we're like step ancestors to the youth right like yes. how are we gonna ignite that fire that you're talking about how are we gonna support them how do we support them and uh, I think ultimately what's important about, yeah, how are we going to support them to really, like what I was saying, connect with their heart and their power and what they really truly love to do, because that's the best way that they're going to contribute. Mm-hmm. And many of them through this program find that they they just like love plants. They love uh, native language. They love the arts and they're just really kind of recommit and commit themselves to, to, um, to, to this kind of mission and purpose that you're saying that they, that there's a, a calling, a calling a to calling. the fire. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's amazing just to continue in communicate to, to continue in communication with them and, and get you know emails from them and messages from them saying like how that program and it's not only our program there's like this are this eco-cultural health programs are happening throughout you know uh, there's a movement but that these spaces of community of reconnecting um 
really helps them uh, find their path. And they are, they're like becoming farmers, they're water protectors. So um, yeah, so Antonio's one of them, like he's been doing, he's doing amazing community uh, farming with, with, with his people. So I'll just read the, the, the song that he wrote as we're talking about plantcestors. What kind of ancestor do you want to be a plantcestor? I want to be the ancestor who planted the three sisters. We wishful thinkers. Why? Because we are resistors. I want to carry the medicine to just run with it and be level-headed with it. Take care of you. Take care of me. All that you got to do, plant them seeds. The acorn on the, and the oak tree, I want to be. I want to be resilient like a cactus staying sharp without acting. I'm loving and free, squash, maize, and beans. I got the heat, the water that I drink, splashing on my feet, that air that I breathe, the wind on my leaves. I got the key. You can come with me or you can leave. (laughs) So passionate. I remember him singing it with his guitar. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Teaching it to everyone. Yeah. Very sweet. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to invite Kaylina and reflections on remembering and hearing those beautiful um, words because you were part of some of that, um, those gatherings as well. And really the inspiration from the youth, um, like Quentin, who is part of our first guardians, who is a dear friend of yours, who's become an incredible young native leader. And that process of mentoring so that even though, you know, you may be also young, you know, even a couple of years older, we can always mentor people, right? And even people younger, I mean, and older than us. So um, share a little bit about that concept of mentoring and being a big sister or an ancestor to some of the other youth. Oh, yeah. No, I'm just, yeah, thank you for that question. But also, Nicola, the, that program was just hearing from the youth about that was such a transformative experience on so many levels. And I think the ability to create that space to even, you know, embark on a journey of, of, you know, deciding on what you even wanted to know more about. I think having that opportunity in space was just, I, I was so um, moved by how that really impacted a lot of um of the youth that went through the program and, and Quentin, who has, is a dear friend of mine. Yes. Is that, I mean, that the mentor, the mentor, it's such a funny, it's, it's so interesting because I think in the moment it's, it's hard to know to say, yes, I am a mentor now, <laughs> but it, it is, it's just a process an act of being of, of who you, um, who you are and carrying your knowledge and, and kind of passing that on and, and, the ways that it's um, that you find the space and time to do. And I think that um, it's a, yeah, it's a funny, I remember we used to always say that they were yelders, the youth elders. So I really felt like it was a very much a, a two-way kind of learning experience because as much as, you know, um, as, as older, the older generation, younger generation, there's just that, that, pathway of learning never ceases. So I think I, I, just as much as I may have been a mentor, I I do think that they, you know, 
you know, there is a, there's a space to be a mentor, I think. And, and that's such a good lesson, Melissa, what you're saying. I mean, taking that responsibility and, and understanding that, you know, we're, we're trying to be a good ancestor to the seven generations is such a beautiful way to think about it. And it's so, I mean, I'm just imagining where all of the youth are now to Nicola and, and seeing Maya with, you know, how the incredible work that and work that she's done as a farmer and connection to corn and her own corn and still with the Oneo again, it's just incredible. And so thankful that, that, you know, path was that, that call was really realized and could be acted upon. I think that's such a, a rare and, and, and special opportunity to have. Um, yeah. Well, you, you were such an important mentor, Kaylin, and maybe you don't know it as much, uh, but you know, a lot of the youth that, that, that come to, come to our program are urban. Uh, many of them have not had, um, the experience that, that you've had of growing up with a family that has the traditional knowledge, the traditional practices, or have been, you know, they, oh yeah, I know that I have a native great grandfather, a native grandfather, but everything, you know, was taken away. We, you know, it was a, a survival of our past generations to not continue uh, with the traditions, so for you as a uh, as a young young woman to have this and 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 share that share them with them, uh, it's uh, you know it's it it was this intertribal sharing that happens that kind of Melissa what you're saying that is so key to the eighth fire of bringing together the the, the intercultural and intertribal to be able to help each other to learn together, to exchange knowledge. And for them was just, you were such inspiration, uh, but also like a source of, of knowledge that they, and experiences that they, many of them have not had. So true, so true, yeah. And I love what you were saying, Kalina, that, you know, to constantly be a learner, right? And a teacher. It's really my whole approach to education as well. And I think an indigenous approach to learning and education that um, even though, yes, as we get older, we hope we gain more knowledge or gain more wisdom and that we obviously so respect our elders profoundly and deeply um, for the knowledge they hold. It, it's equally important for elders to listen to the youngers, like you're saying. And um, I think that's been a key part of our program and the work that we're doing is, and from, you know, indigenous processes of learning, it's more learning by doing, right? And learning by being. It's not that, you know, extractive model of Western education where knowledge is like currency that's bought and sold and traded and deposited and extracted. Um, it's more a vibrational thing and, and um, a transmission like the, the Buddhists talk about. And so just spending that time together, doing things together, which has been so much of such a part of our program and so much of indigenous learning um i think embodying it through the seeds and the water has been just uh, such a gift and that we keep learning together about it so thank you both for being such great 
inspirations um, for this work. And I want to ask a little bit of a more challenging one too. And Nicola, you started to uh, allude to it a bit that a lot of the youth that came to our program really didn't grow up, quote, traditionally, which is actually more the norm today than, you know, sadly, um, a lot of Indigenous youth have been disconnected because of those fifth and sixth fires of assimilation and boarding school and relocation and you know, taught to be ashamed of being um, Indigenous. So there's been historical trauma. And so much of your work, I know, um, has focused on really healing from historical trauma and um, doing it with, you know, cultural arts and creative arts and, of course, other types of, you know, therapeutics in your practice. But just as an educator, you know, you and I have always connected around that. So if you want to just say a little bit more about the, the process of addressing it as an educator and, and supporting youth through that. Yeah, thank you, Melissa. Yeah, we definitely address it in the program. Uh, both directly and indirectly. Uh, I think, uh, like you say, indirectly, just by engaging, emerging, embodying the waters, the seeds, just having positive experience of reconnecting in a positive way with their uh, with their identities. Uh, it's already transforming that shame. Um, that might have been passed down um, and that they internalize. So we talk a lot about that, about like how have these messages uh, have, uh, have, have you internalized them? So they are, you know, they're kind of in your mind, like things that you might tell yourself around, like I'm not good enough or I have to hide these parts of myself. And uh, I, yeah, we use, we use expressive arts therapy, drama therapy uh, of, of embodying these different voices that we've internalized, talking back at them, talk, helping each other talking back, uh, talk back at them. But just by uh, acknowledging that there's that there's uh, a trauma that has been passed down either because of the culture or or family, and uh, and having talking circles and having these practices of of really. Uh, making making conscious what has been passed down and what needs to be transformed, uh, it's it begins that process of of transformation. Um, and we talk a lot about yeah the that how healing that being the healers and healing that transforming that it's also healing our ancestors uh, and it's doing that for the future generations. Um, so again, it's not linear, but it's you know it's it's happening. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Kaylina Bray, Nicola Wagenberg, and host Melissa K. Nelson. So th- those are some, yeah, those are some ideas. Yes. Thank you yeah. so much for sharing that. I think that's such an important part of the Guardians of the Waters Youth Program and the and yeah. the section in the book that you um, curated and co-wrote with the youth. It's really all about that expression and that transformation to ignite the eighth fire. Yeah. yeah, and helping each other coming together. And and it's not just historical traumas, traumas that are happening now in their present lives. 
Yes. Too much. Exactly. The uh-huh. pandemic year or two has been very, very troubling for folks. So to also provide tools and resources for how to address ongoing um, traumas or microaggressions is, is really key. Yeah. Thank you so much for that cultural healing work. And Kaylina, before we move to uh, the uh, Q&A with our wonderful participants here, um, I'd love for you to share a little bit more about your current work with corn and farming and agriculture and and you're working on a research project for community health also and indigenous health and um, anything else you'd like to share about your important work with um, the indigenous foodways. Thank you. Yeah, no, there, I mean, just quickly to reflect on, on what Nicola was saying, I, I do think that part of that important work that I saw with the youth too was understanding that there was that trauma from even being disconnected from your traditions, from your homelands, from your, from your foods. And I think that foodways work, um, part of understanding what that disconnection can do um, is really creating those networks and spaces to be able to kind of to talk and to have that time to just say this happened and this affected me. And this is, you know, especially with something like seeds, which is, you know, passed down and, and from generations and has is something that's so deeply cared for by the farmers and the seed keepers. And to think about, something like that being lost which is almost itself like a whole library of adaptation mechanisms and is is a traumatic thing to think about but then when it happens is something that um really deeply impacts um people so on a you know culturally and and spiritually so one of the the projects that um that i was working on um have been working on was through a, an incredible network called Braiding the Sacred. Um, and it it touches on um, kind of looking at what, bringing together farmers. So it was really focused on native farmers and bringing, creating that space so that farmers could come together and not only share, you know, what has happened with what is going on in the current day with our with our fields, with our seeds, you know, what's going on with our raccoons. I mean, there's lots of things happened. And I remember the first, first um, gathering that we had was at Onondaga Nation. And it was, it was the, it was actually, it was at youth, the four youth of four, four or five youth that we all came together um, with some of our elders. And we hosted this gathering to bring together farmers from Onondaga Nation. And it became the sharing of that trauma of, you know, seed loss and how we're not growing enough food and enough seeds. And it was just so emotional to see, you know, how connected people are to, to the seeds, to the food and, and to understand that this is a responsibility to, to carry on. Um, and I think, those those types of meetings and gatherings have created really important networks and space for um, for people to connect and to really understand and, and unpack what you know where we are now and what needs to happen especially as we're seeing things with climate change and the pandemic and and I, and you know I think um, currently with in turn with the health I, I've been doing some work more looking at foodways and health and and that's uh, 
a bit about, you know, we're seeing a lot of these these diseases, especially impacting Native communities, but it's it's kind of, it goes beyond that because it's really about this connection that is at risk of being disrupted. And I think that's where that emotion and that power comes from to, to understand, you know, it's not just the food. I mean, it's not just the wild rice or the salmon or the white corn, but it's everything that we think about that our ancestors have carried on for us to be able to be here. It's, it's actually allowed us to survive. And that's, what's so important and meaningful to, to carry on and to, to share and to, to continue that connection. I think that's where a lot of that, um, that deep responsibility uh, rests and comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So beautifully said, Kaylina, thank you for that you know, passionate um, overview and understanding of our foods are not just, you know, calories and uh, amino acids, right? I mean, they they are our relatives. We really treat them as such. And you've demonstrated that so beautiful, you and your parents and family of the relationship with Oneogen and then really transfer that to us. So we felt like we were getting like a baby, like, you know, and it was so special, so different than, you know, the way agribusiness treats their seeds and corn. We won't even start that conversation. But um, thank you for really keeping that alive through your family line and and really inspiring others and working with others through the Braiding the Sacred Network to to really keep your eye on that that spiritual and cultural dimension of our relationship to food, um, which is still forgotten. And a lot of even, you know, food food justice or food sovereignty circles, um, you know, you're really keeping that um, integrity, I guess I would say, really alive and and strong. So thank you. Um, Wonderful. Well, we're getting close to the end of our conversation here. And unless there's anything else either of you would like to share, we thought it'd be nice to close with a short clip really showing some of these youth that we've been talking about and you can get the book and read the chapter and read the other chapters of um, there's a lot of different indigenous youth that share in this book. Um, And so um, Ken, we'll, we'll close this part of the circle before the Q and a with um, that clip you have queued up. Reclaiming indigenous health is indigenous perspective. Native media, Native arts and skills, and the watercraft tradition. Discovering our people's uses in the environment, how we took care of it. Not only are we transforming ourselves by learning these things, but by transforming ourselves, we're in turn transforming our communities because we're able to share that knowledge now. Coming from people that have had big traumas lets us see that connecting piece, heal together, and understand how do we relate to all of that's around us. Indigenous water consciousness is really identifying with water on a very visceral, personal level. You treat it as an ancestor rather than an element that you're supposed to conserve. You think of it as a mother that's giving you your life. To the oceans and the rivers and the ice, take this message of prayer and help heal. Mm, 
oh, so refreshing to see that again. And very poignant, too, because it really represents an incredible knowledge keeper, Kathy Wallace from the Yurok Karukupa people of Northern California. And she passed to the spirit world in 2020. Um, and uh, to see her there as a, a new ancestor is very poignant. And to also see um, all the youth, including Kiva McGann, who is now, after a decade, working with the Cultural Conservancy again as a staff member. So the circles just keep keep circling and spiraling back and forth. So what a what a treat! Well, Nicola and Kalina, unless you have a burning closing statement, um, we will open it up maybe now for some Q and A. But Chimikwich, thank you so much for your wisdom and your knowledge and your stories and your beautiful chapters in the book they really um they really start us off in such a good way all right so we received um a question here oh from our dear for our from our very own um thank you for sharing about how important the human relationship with corn is i'm thinking about industrial farming and practices of genetically modified organisms and gm corn and it's overwhelming to see the parallels and our ways of relating to corn and to each other what is your vision for how we heal our relationship with corn across the Americas? Oh, great question. That's a great, great question. It's a, it's a tough question too, because it's, it's, there's, it is not so straightforward because of kind of a lot of factors that have brought us to where we are now with our relationship to corn. But I do think that, um, the vision would be to regain a lot of the diversity that we've lost due to some of these, you know, the monoculture and the, the agribusiness. And that not only goes for corn, we've lost a lot of diversity of other types of food um, and seeds. And I think, I mean, having those traditional seeds, I think is going to be an important part of how, we're moving forward in times of climate change, which is where we're at and what we're looking towards. And I think um, some of the the inspiring projects that have started to crop up are around looking at how we can build these seed libraries that exchange traditional foods or ways of, of kind of integrating those types of um, diverse seeds, traditional seeds, back into communities and and regain that knowledge around even farming and planting. I mean, a lot of that has been lost too. So there's a whole element of education, I think, that needs to come back um, into, into the fold. And I think starting with youth, I mean, that's always where the change is, is really happening. And we're seeing that even now at the climate change conference. I mean, there's a big push among youth that this needs to change. And I think that building on that fire will be um, a critical part of, of, you know, stepping away from the way that we've been doing things for na- for so long that hasn't been working and thinking about how to build that educational model so that we can have a different um, system for agriculture. But it's, it is not easy in the systems that we're in. So uh, that's the vision, but how we get there is the, is the question. Is, is the question. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Thank you so much, Kayleen. A great vision. And it's true. I think it's both grassroots change from the bottom with accountability and more education with farmers. My people are from North Dakota, part of that, you know, corn belt or wheat belt of GMO agriculture. And like you said, Catherine, it's just so tragic to see in so many ways. And um, as uh, Rowan White shared, not last week in our conversation, but previously that, you know, she was driving once through all those fields and just kind of started crying and, and got out and, and, and prayed to the corn because she said it's still corn, even though it's been genetically modified. And the corn mother is still living within within her, um, but she's been altered and changed. And um, I also know, you know, part of the big picture is changing our uh, economic systems of how farming is done. So many small farmers or even larger farmers, they don't necessarily want to use GM genetically modified seed or use all those pesticides, but they're caught in a financial economic system that really they think they have no choice. So we really need to change that um, as well as bring back the agrobiodiversity through small family farms and permaculture and indigenous farming that is happening with our various networks um, like um, Braiding the Sacred and NAFSA and and Slow Food Turtle Island Association and the work of Clayton Brascope with the traditional Native American Farmers Association. So there's a bottom-up movement, but there also has to be policy changes. And we'll see, we'll see how that goes with our political climate. But thank you for that important question. Nicola, do you have any comment on that one? Or well, I also I also love uh, and it's critical, but just learning about Teosente, the original core, yeah. and how we teach the youth about Teosente, how we have it, how in, in our farming, we, in, you know, we planted around the edges of the corn. Um, so, you know, like Wendy, Wendy, Bray, uh, Wendy talks about like the importance of coming back to the original, um, the original seed. And, yes. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, teosinte, the, the original grass seed that all corn varieties come from, and it was indigenous science and indigenous ingenuity or indigenuity um, that really led to all of the extraordinary varieties of corn um, without the invasive genetic modification that is now being done by ejecting viruses and other trans species into them. So, um, yes, there's a lot of important uh, education that still needs to happen to transform agriculture and to restore the sanctity of our first foods and the corn varieties. Um, great. Let's move on to our second question here. Um, JP asks, are there any thoughts or plans about creating common ground to include non-Indigenous or non-Native peoples into this dialogue? Oh, of course, JP. And I mean, I'll just say quickly, having you know led the Cultural Conservancy for nearly 30 years, all peoples were welcome at our events and groups. Um, sometimes, though, with the Guardians of the Waters Youth Program, when you have young people, you need to create a safe container and a safe space. 
And it's really important that people feel that they can share their stories with other people who have similar stories. So we do have four Indigenous only circles at times, mainly for our own healing and our own um, work. But we've always been intertribal and intercultural and really supporting um, the work for all peoples committed to these values of diversity and sustainability and and health and well-being for all peoples. So there are many spaces that are um, for everyone to share. Um, Absolutely. And, And Nicola may be able to speak about that a bit too, about her own identity as a you know, Colombian Jewish Latinx woman um, and how she's navigated that with people who identify strongly as indigenous from indigenous heritage. Um, So again, just to repeat the question, are there thoughts or plans about creating common ground to include non-indigenous peoples into this dialogue? That was my quick response. And yes, Um, Nicola, can I put you on the spot for that one? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's what you're saying, Melissa, we have been doing it with the Cultural Conservancy and obviously there are other spaces that do it too. Uh, and that I, I've been invited, I've been honored to be w- working with the Cultural Conservancy. I don't have direct indigenous roots, um, um, but identify as a Latinx and Jewish. And, uh, and there is definitely a dialogue that needs to happen um, in terms of uh, how do we share respectfully? How do we look into our own identities and do our own healing, our intergenerational healing, uh, and at the same time come at the table uh, respectfully wanting to learn and and share with each other. Um, So we do that. And then the other aspect of it is that many of our youth are actually mixed heritage. So uh, many of them have one parent or grandparent that is white, that's uh, more of a settler. And we have a lot of those conversations. What does it look like to have, and Melissa, you write beautifully and uh, about that. What does it have to have mixed uh, heritage within you? Have the, you know, more like the victim and the, the colonizer and the colonized. And then they go back and bring those, those that work to their communities or their families where they're where they're having that kind of intercultural conversation. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. And I think, you know, um, every nation and every community is different, but uh, since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was established by the Canadian government over a decade ago, now there is a real um, overt and explicit conversation about reconciliation between uh, Indigenous peoples and settler society in Canada, as there has been in New Zealand with the Maori and the Pakia the settlers there and in Australia to some degree. And it's sad that it's really not as um, on people's attention in America as much, but it's growing with the indigenous rights movement. And I think since the water protectors of Standing Rock, I think there's much more awareness now um, in um, the U.S. and in other places that, wow, we really need to understand better the history of Native America from Native perspectives. And it's Native American heritage 
Heritage Month, you know, the one month uh, the nation kind of looks at these issues and there needs to be much more understanding about reconciling um, the historical traumas and the and injustices that have happened and working to um, resolve those with, you know, whether it's reparations and land back and land rematriation and supporting the sovereignty of Indigenous nations um, uh, and supporting the well-being of settler societies to be good settlers and good neighbors. So there's some um, important actions happening at the grassroots level along these lines. Uh, Kaylina, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I agree with, with what you're saying around that. And, and it re- reminds me of, of one of our teachings with the Tura Wampum, which is really based on that sort of that need. I mean, there's a critical need to have these relationships and conversations between Indigenous, non-Indigenous, um, and there's, you know, each nation has their own identity as well. But the, in our way of looking at it, we're, we've come across on these two canoes and each of us has our own way of understanding and thinking. And that realization um, allows us to be on our canoes. But, you know, we have dialogue that goes back and forth, but we're not supposed to necessarily, you know, infringe on one another's canoes, so to speak, but have that sort of humble way of um, approaching and recognizing that, you know, there is, there are different differences, but I mean, to say that it is so important, especially now to have these, um, types of dialogue and conversations, I think it's, it's just so important. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you for bringing up the, the Tiro Wampum, such a profound teaching. And, um, even though I wasn't it the first treaty signed on Turtle Island, I believe, right? From the Onondaga and the Dutch. Yeah, even before the United States was created. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then there's been settler communities in New York. And I know the wonderful Robin Kimmerer um, as a Potawatomi settler in Haudenosaunee land has been a part of some efforts to actually take canoes down the river and reenact the Turo Wampum between settlers and the indigenous peoples. And to try to, again, create, it was based on unity and friendship and reciprocity and to kind of bring back those values and decolonize from the dominant um, harmful ones that we've seen for the last 500 years. So, yes, thank you for sharing that. Such a beautiful teaching. Um, we just have a couple minutes left, and I see two in- great questions that I think I'll just try to address quickly. Um, how do we integrate or honor European ancestors? I think that's very important. I'll speak personally. You know, I'm half Norwegian, and um, you know, the the Norwegian folks and the Scandinavian folks have um, really deep land traditions. I mean, the deep ecology movement came out of Arne Ness, who is Norwegian, because they have this wisdom in the open air. You know, you have to be outside to really have wisdom. You know, with the mountains and the rivers, and um, and even the the birch bark is so important to the Scandinavians, and that's shared with my Ojibwe and Cree ancestors because it's the same latitude, the same territory. And then the Sami people are indigenous to Europe um, up in the deep north. And so I think there's ways to look at the deep um, earth-based traditions of European 
cultures, pre-Christian generally, and not to diss Christianity, but that's generally when a shift away from the drum and and the more earth-based practices happened. Um, But it's important to not do a bypass and and not acknowledge the, the harm that our European ancestors also did to other peoples and especially to Indigenous peoples. So it's a complex, good question. Um, One resource is um, a wonderful book by the late Ralph Metzner. Um, Oh, look up his book. I'm trying to remember. The Well of Remembrance. And that's about the pre-Christian indigenous traditions of Europe. The Well of Remembrance, Ralph Metzner, who also sadly just passed away. Um, And then another um, wonderful youth um, wants to know if there's a Guardians of the Waters Youth Program in Aotearoa. Let's do it. In fact, that term came from our Maori relatives, Will Cookie Kingy and Tanya Wolfgram. They were like, you should do a youth program. What does it mean to be a guardian of the water? So it's kind of full circle, Amara, that you're asking that. So maybe you can start it and we can help. We'd, we'd love to. Um, but our Pacific Islander relatives from Aotearoa and Hawaii have been big leaders and teachers for our Guardians of the Waters program. So thank you. Um, Great. Well, I think we're at our time. I want to acknowledge uh, Nicola and Kaylina for all of the wisdom you shared with us today. Thank you, sisters. Such an honor to be together with you. And thank all of you for coming and sharing with us and listening. And you can find out more information through the New School and the Cultural Conservancy and all the links we shared. And I would like to pass it now back to Kira. and. Thanks again. Yes, I think, uh, Catherine, I think you have a few words to say. Is that correct? Yeah, thanks, Kira. Um, I just want to mention again, um, and, well, and thank you, Kalina and Nicola, for joining Melissa this week and all of us um, and sharing so deeply of your experience, reading from your chapters, um, learning your stories was really powerful. And I, um, I've been thinking back to the conversation that we had last week with Rowan and um, the work that she described that I feel that this ancestor book is really a part of, um, bringing the diversity of voices and perspectives together, um, sharing from stories and experiences that are often not made into our uh, the narratives that were taught in kind of our formal schooling and culture, dominant culture. Um, this book, I think, really picks up some of that work that Rowan described as the cultural work of storytelling, um, being the way that we transform the world we're living and participating in. And something I'm uh, taking away from the conversation that you both just had um, is how a lot of these divided stories that we're living in and divided ways of seeing um, can really be healed when we look to our ancestors, and in particular, this model of seeds as our children and also as our ancestors um, helps me to think about the elder youth relationship in a totally new way. Um, so thank you so much for bringing that um, to us today and for everything you shared. Um, and yeah, Kira, I'll hand it to you. All right. Well, I will add my thanks to uh, the circle for everybody who's joined us from all the places that you are on our precious earth. 
And you'll be able to find the recordings from this conversation and from the first conversation in the series, which we held last week with Rowan and Rachel. If you're on our mailing list or if you follow our feeds on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, you'll be notified when the recordings are posted. Kaylina Bray, Nicola Wagenberg, and Melissa Nelson, thank you for being with us at the New School at Commonweal. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Kaylina Bray, Nicola Wagenberg, and host Melissa K. Nelson. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.